Right, hello. Yes, I know, it's the start of a podcast and you just want to get straight into it, but if you like this podcast, chances are you're probably going to like other podcasts made by Lush, such as Tiny Revolutions, a podcast in which Tiff Stevenson interviews comedians like Sarah Pascoe and Nish Kumar about how comedy can be a force for social change. You can find it wherever you find podcasts, and chances are if you're listening to this, you're pretty good at the whole finding out where podcasts are thing. But as well as here, you can find podcasts by Lush on the Lush Player app. Okay, I'm done. Happy listening! The best recorded engineer in the world, Steve Albini allows the artist's true vision to be laid to tape with none of the smoke and mirrors of showbiz. With his own powerful vision particularly underlined in his own brilliant band Shellac, he first burst onto the music scene in the 1980s with the explosive Big Black and was a vociferous and acidic presence on a moribund music scene. But in this interview, a far more reflective Steve Albini looks back upon his career. Yeah, I had started, I built a studio in the basement of my house in, when I bought it in 1986. Uh, and then my band, Big Black, recorded our last recording session there. And then I didn't have a band, but I had a studio. So uh, it was sort of became a resource for other bands. John's band was one of the very first bands to record there. Um, I had one like sort of proper client prior to, to the membranes, a, a country and western singer named Robbie Folks. And last year, I did, uh, or two years ago, I did another, I did an album with him. And last year, that album was nominated for a Grammy Award. Wow. Yeah. So it's, I've had the, like the same. That wasn't a burn, by the way. <laughs> but I've, I've been sort of working and dealing with, continually working with and dealing with the same people for a very, very long time. They always go back for more. Well, not everybody, but yeah. the, the point is that there's very long threads of continuity in the, in the music scene. And it seems like that, I mean, it seems true everywhere I go. Like I, when I come here, I'm still dealing with the same people that I dealt with 25 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, when I'm in Japan, I'm still communicating with the same people that I communicated with 25, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, I, I think that part of that, the long-term nature of those relationships is the fact that I have never been very professional about anything. <laughs> and that everything has always sort of felt like a social interaction. Like if you, oh yeah, I met that guy once at this thing, and you know, then you're still on good terms, whereas if you, if you had a, like a professional relationship with him, like, oh, I hired that man to work for me, or, you know, mm -hmm. I, we had a contract dispute, that sort of thing. But then you get the, the more expensive one next time in yeah. the music business. So it's, with, the, with the studio, I mean, was that something you were always interested in, to become a recording engineer? Because from, from the very earliest Big Black Records, which you were basically making in your room at the yeah. college, weren't you? I mean, it was a matter of necessity at the beginning. Uh, I had been in bands, uh, punk bands and such, f since the late 1970s, and um, it seems hard to believe now, but at that time, a lot of bands would go through their entire 
existence without ever recording anything. Just because going to a recording studio was prohibitively expensive and there really wasn't any personal recording gear that you could use, like the hi-fi tape recorders and stuff weren't suited for making studio recordings or multi-track recordings of any kind. And so most bands would go through their entire life cycle and never have any evidence that they existed. And there started to be some more compact recording equipment available in the late 1970s. And it was quite typical for a music store to have a recording package that they would rent to bands to record demo tapes. And it would be, you know, a four-track reel-to-reel tape recorder, the one reel of tape that everybody used, and a couple of microphones. And so that was a, a habit, became a habit of mine to rent equipment like that and to record my band and record my friends' bands. And it just sort of grew into a more professional recording existence from there, but it, it was very, very much a matter of necessity in the beginning. But so few bands of that period had any interest in, in the recording techniques. I mean, I think you were about the only person I'd met up to that time who knew how to actually work a studio. I mean, it, it, within every circle of musicians, though, there was that one guy, mm -hmm. right? Like in your town, I'm sure there was one guy that everybody knew. Oh, yeah, that guy. That, it's an older guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, somebody, somebody that used <laughs> to work at a radio station, or, yeah. you know, guy that got fired from uh, a studio or something. There was, there was always some guy that ran a sound company out of his garage or whatever that had a tape recorder and he would do recordings of bands. There was always somebody, you know. And that person, like I knew who that person was in Minneapolis. It was a guy named Brian Paulson. And he became another recording engineer in his own studio and has recorded a bunch of records. Um, and I knew who that guy was in New York. It was Warden Tears, you know. And I knew who that guy was in, you know, Louisville, Kentucky. It's a guy whose name I can't remember. <laughs> but there was a guy that all the bands would go to. In every town, there was like some local person who made himself available as a recording person. And before I, you know, before I had a proper studio and everything, there was a, a guy in Chicago named Tim Powell, who was uh, friends and roommates with all of the early punk bands in Chicago, and he recorded um, uh, he had a van and he put a bunch, some recording equipment in his van and he would drive to the rehearsal space and record the bands in their rehearsal spaces. And he eventually made a business out of that and had a, a, a mobile recording truck that has recorded hundreds of albums, live albums, all around the country. And he's still in, still in business and still doing precisely that, just going to record, you know, Fish or Bruce Springsteen or whoever. Yeah. Oh, so he's at the, uh, the top table. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's, he's a he's a, a, a well-known figure in the live recording world. So, did you from the start did you have quite a strong idea of how things should be recorded? I mean, there's there's a fantastic interview you did, wasn't there, about you know how bands should operate and how they should make records. Uh, a, a lot again, a lot of that is purely practical. Um, if you're if you're operating as a working band where you're you have limited amount of money that you're generating from the band and you you know you can't bankrupt the band 
with a recording by trying to make the white album or whatever. You know, you have to keep it practical. Otherwise, you create a problem for the existence of, and the sustainability of the band. So, um, the practical aspect of recording is a big influence on my recording techniques, my recording philosophy. Just trying to be efficient, trying to make sure that bands get an accurate representation, but uh, where it, you don't waste time or, or money trying to trying to do something fantastic. Um, I'll have to admit that that's that. The, the fact that recording technology has become much more ubiquitous now, like everyone has access to some kind of recording capability now, that the, the idea of spending weeks or months or even years on an album is not quite realistic. Whereas previously, to spend that kind of time in the studio, you would have to have someone subsidizing it. You know, some, someone would have to be out of their mind and, you know, just um, indulging you in order to, to do that kind of thing. But now, it's quite common for people to spend a year or more working on a, a record alone in their apartment. And then eventually it comes out and it's a very personalized thing that they have uniquely crafted over a very long period of time. It's a, you know, it's a completely different aesthetic and a completely different way of working. But I think it's perfectly valid. And I'm also, I think it's a, a, a it's another step in the kind of empowerment of individual little players in the music scene that now anyone who wants to can make a record and anyone who wants to can find an audience. Like if you wanted to tonight, you could go home to your hotel room and sing a song into your iPhone and post it on YouTube. And then, if other people liked it, tomorrow morning you could be famous in Malaysia, you know. <laughs> <laughs> if only it was that easy. <laughs> and I think that yeah. that aspect of things is the big, single biggest change in music from when I was first playing in the 70s and 80s. Just the fact that the whole world can hear about your band or your music, you know, very, very easily now. Um, there is, of course, an extraordinary, overwhelming glut of material out there. So getting the attention of the world is now problematic. It's not, it used to be that you could hire people to make people pay attention to your music by forcing it on the radio or making a videotape or something like that. But uh, now, I'm, I'm sure this is true for the audience, we can ask them later, but in my circle of friends, the music that people listen to is extremely personal. Like, um, if you go into somebody's office while they're working, what they're listening to is not the radio that everyone else is listening to. It's some personally selected playlist of music that's uniquely suited to their taste, you know. And uh, I, I think that's also wonderful as a, for, for the listener. Like, you no longer are limited to listening to what other outside corporate interests have decided you should listen to. You can listen to literally anything. And I think that is, that's also amazing as a listener. Um, but what it, what it does is it prevents the existence of a single um, monolithic cultural movement. Like, if you listen to the eras of pop music, you know, there were very specific sort of 
eras where certain stylistic things were norms, you know. And, and now I feel like we're at the very end of that, where there are many little fractured sub-genres that have their own internal consistency, but there is no great overall thrust to music. And uh, I, I personally think that's wonderful, but it, it does mean that if you are just some random person making music to suit yourself, there isn't necessarily a convenient stream for you to plug into to find an audience. You have to find an audience individually. Every band has to find an audience individually. The idea of being connected through a culture. So when you were growing up, it was quite remote where you grew up, but when punk rock came, you felt you were plugged into something that around the rest of the world, which doesn't, that won't punk, exist now, yeah, right? Punk rock definitely changed my life. Like the idea of punk rock being that people could do, with limited means, they could do whatever they wanted to to express themselves and that other people would give them room to do it. Other people like them, their peers, would be, um, would be their audience, basically. It was a revolutionary idea to me. Um, because up until then, I had only thought of music as being some, you know, part of a, a, a remote industry, the show business industry, where, you know, the limousine pulled up and the rock star came out and he was es escorted by security onto the stage and then the professional musicians played. And, and just the idea that, you know, 20 people in a room could be a gig was, you know, groundbreaking. That was an incredible revelation to me. And when I moved to Chicago in 1980, I found a music scene that was extremely active and where there, there was a small number of people, maybe a hundred or so people, but all of those people were really smart and really motivated and, you know, really aggressively trying to advance uh, culture and art with the, whatever means they had available. And that was completely intoxicating to me. I, I, I came to Chicago to go to college. Like, a, you know, I finished high school and I went to college. And so ostensibly I went to Chicago to come to college. But what I really did was I came to Chicago in, in order that I could find a music scene. And I, I it, yeah, I was took to it like a fish to water. When you look back on Big Black now, and I guess you don't often look back because you're probably too busy in the studio all the time. Yeah. But when you look at that Steve Albini at that time, it's a very different Steve Albini than now. It was, I mean, it was fantastic. You were acidic, yeah. uh, in your face, fantastically difficult testing. There's a thing that's true of young men in particular where they get an idea and they are so proud of themselves for having that idea that they feel they need to share it with everyone, you know? And I was victim, I felt victim to that organic impulse, and I was, you know, I thought I was a fucking genius, you know, like everybody at that age, you know? Everybody else is an idiot, and I'm the only person that's got it figured out, and it's time for me to straighten everybody out. You know, the longer you live, the more you realize how little you knew back when you knew everything. You know? And I, I feel, as a, you know, as I've grown and matured, I can appreciate the aesthetics of what I was doing more than I appreciate than I can appreciate the person that I was on a, just on a personal level at that point. I, I was, I, I probably made an unnecessary number of enemies. And, and I was probably unnecessarily judgmental of people who hadn't had the same ideas that I had. And I feel like, you know, part of the process of maturing is being able to 
appreciate the difference between what you think and what other people think as something other than warfare. <laughs> but it was, it was like, it's a very deliberately provocative uh, band, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Big Black, the band, had a sort of a central conceit. And that central conceit was that everyone is capable of all of the distant abstract horrors that you hear other people perpetrating. Mm -hmm. We're all the same species, given the same stimulus, given the same situations. Who knows what any of us would do under these extreme circumstances? And the central conceit being that we were all capable of being monsters had two sides. One side was you think you're above all of this human ugliness. You think you are, you're looking down on it from an elevated position, but you're not. You are part of it. You're, it's a spectrum and you are on that spectrum. And the other part of it is that you recognize the humanity in the people who are horrible and that they are human means that at some point they felt love and warmth and affection and finding the, the triggers that can shut those impulses off and turn people into the performative monsters is a, a pretty important part of the human existence is to, to find the things that make people awful and mute them and find the things that allow people to be decent and moral and normal and encourage them. And so Big Black focused on the ugly side of humanity uh, because at the time there was a kind of a general cultural whitewashing uh, where unpleasant behavior or antisocial behavior was um, punished and forgotten, and uh, I thought it should be explored as a more natural part of the human condition. And how does that affect you as somebody who's dealing with that in a narcissistic way? Does it, you know, does it create a very negative atmosphere for you as a person, or is it just switch on and switch off? I think it made me, at the time, it made me fairly insensitive, and that might be one of those personality traits that I'm that I, I now feel some shame about, was that someone else's suffering, you know, my, my first instinct was not to try to ameliorate that suffering, my first instinct was to examine it sort of academically and figure out who, who was causing the suffering and why, you know. And so that made me a colder person and, and probably a more cynical person than uh, I am now. I wouldn't say you you were cold, you were a great host, but you were, you were testing though, God you were testing. Yeah. Like you're getting books of operations out, you know, like uh, like wounds and things, and, uh, and that, uh, that guy, the mayor who blew his brains out yeah. live on TV, I remember watching that about 10 times over and over, uh, as you were putting it on over and over. Yeah. So it was, that was the kind of atmosphere, but it wasn't, that makes it sound a lot more unpleasant than it actually was. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can imagine enjoying that in, in the way that I would enjoy certain things, but also, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't do that now. Mm. And, uh, yeah. and I don't think I'd, I'd enjoy being around someone who did. Mm. But I do also think that there's been a general 
cultural shift now, and people are more aware of their influences on other other people, and the you know the I think this general cultural shift, which some people call political correctness, I think has been overall a very good thing, and has made people generally more decent to one another, and that to me is a is a kind of an achievement. It's nothing to be self-conscious about, uh, and it's I I don't have the critical impulse that other people have about feeling restrained by notions of propriety or decency. Uh, I, I think being aware of those things and treating other people with respect is good and honorable, and I'm glad that I have been w woken up to it. You know, it, it was definitely there all the time. That, that was definitely part of it as well. I mean, there was, I mean, it was, yeah. it was testing, but there was definitely uh, a communal respect thing there as well. Yeah, but I mean, I was certainly deaf to criticism, um, and I don't know that I am deaf to criticism now. Um, I probably don't immediately heed it, but at the time, I, th I, I thought all criticism of my way of thinking, my friends, my peers' way of thinking, was by, by default ignorant, mm. you know. Was there, was there a specific turning point, or is it just a gradual process? Yeah, I think it's been very gradual. Like I've maintained continuity in the music scene the whole time. I've been playing in bands and making records for, I, don't, I haven't done the math, but a long time, 37, 38 years, something like that, which is a long time. And in that whole period, I've been surrounded by the current active music scene, like people who are the age that I was when I was first being active in bands, you know, people in their late teens, their 20s, their early 30s. And I've seen a general sort of warming of the humanity of those people. Even in, you know, like I, I work on a lot of heavy metal records, and heavy metal records are sort of by default very dark and very heavy, right? But those people, especially, you know, as they personally age and mature and become more wise and uh, grow families and things like that, those people can be incredibly warm, inviting people. And the same with, you know, the people who are doing experimental performances where, you know, you're being stabbed by somebody or you're, you know, hacking a goat head in pieces, things like that. You know, it's very performative, very uh, bracing performance, but those people on a personal level can be quite warm and can be quite comfortable people to be around. Well, quite often the most extreme music is made by the most gentle people. It's one of those interesting dichotomies, isn't it? Yeah. And then you find out that there's, you know, somebody that does a puppet show for children that's a monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what does this bring into Shellac, you know, this... The way you've changed as you got older, obviously Shellac's an exact three-piece. It's not yeah. just you, I'm not saying that at all. But as, as the rest of the band got older as well, because I remember some of the members of your band were quite wild when I first met them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's odd and unusual to be of the, of the age that you used to consider beyond the pale when you were, you know, when I was in my 20s, I thought anybody in their 50s was clearly a fraud, you know. Like, why does that guy even put his guitar on anymore? I mean, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. But I, the but the impulse to do it 
is still there. And uh, when we started this band 25 years ago, something like that, um, I was fairly certain that this would be the last band I was in, however long it lasted. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in going through the, the motions of being a musician just out of familiarity. There was a, a kind of a, there was a, an object of ridicule in our music scene were these people who were these lifer musicians who just went from one band to another to another, always feeling aggrieved that they had never achieved enough success, always feeling, um, you know, entitled because they've been around, you know, that they've paid their dues. Like, those, those kinds of people were an embarrassment, and I never wanted to become like that. So I've tried to remain grounded in the day-to-day the -day of being in, a, in the band, and I've tried to remain very very attached to the present active scene of music rather than my idealized remembrance of it. There's a, no, a lot of nostalgia in play right now. I'm not a nostalgic person by nature, but I do run into other people who are our age in our 50s who have been in music for a, a period, and many, many, many of them are stuck in their notion of the way music should be conducted. You know, oh, they won't even let you smoke on stage anymore. You know? <laughs> Thing, there's, this, there's this sort of uh, tooled leather quality about them where it's like, you know, they spent so long perfecting this notion of themselves or this image of themselves that they don't want to waste it. You know, they want to they keep that same thing going forever, so they keep pull on the motorcycle boots and put on the leather jacket and, you know, go do the same thing they've been doing. And on one hand, I can admire that as a kind of a commitment. On the other hand, I don't want to be that. I want to, I want, I want to be engaged in the present day and in the, 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 the way the world actually is as opposed to how I wish it were the way it used to be. And I, I feel like that's a a weakness that I see in some of my peers that I don't want to indulge in myself. So it's when you, um, tonight you'll be playing new shellac songs in the set, mm -hmm. and is it always, do you challenge yourself to make those, not contemporary, contemporary sounds like you're just trying to keep up, but I know what you mean, it's uh, they don't sound like uh, they were embalmed in the past. There's always, well, as you're creating, you have to keep pushing and pushing. In Specifically in shellac, we don't have any stylistic references. Like it's not like we are playing a style of music that we want to continue. We're just pursuing what's in front of us and what's engaging to us at the moment. So the current batch of songs have a style of playing that is unique to this current batch and not reminiscent of the previous batch. But the, you know, and then I expect that next year the songs that we write next year and it takes us about a year to write a song. <laughs> so I should say, the song process. that we write next year. <laughs> I expect that one to be different still. You know? um, it's, not a, it's not a conscious effort, but I would say that we have walled ourselves off from the rest of the world in terms of influence or, um, or care. Like, I genuinely don't care what anyone who's not in the band thinks about the band. I mean, it's nice that people come see us, that's, that's flattering. But if they didn't come see us, it wouldn't change a thing about the way the band behaves. So, so in a way, you're trying to hone down your own personal perfection, in a sense, in, that, in the context of those three people. 
Yeah, every, every time we start on something new, there are similar conversations about what everybody's role should be in the piece of music, and, and then we just do it again and again and again, and experimentally we all find our sea legs, and eventually it becomes a song that we can perform in, in public, and then eventually it, you know, the, the structure of it exposes itself, and we all recognize how it's supposed to go. Very, very seldom is there any kind of an articulation like, we should do this precisely eight times. Yeah, <laughs> it's just when it feels right. Yeah. If it's seven, then it's right. It's just when it is. Yeah. I'm certain that there is some kind of internal logic that we follow without thinking about it. But for me, the important thing is that we don't think about it. You know, I mean, we use standard Western notation and tunings. Like we're not, we haven't tried to reinvent music. We're just the the in, within our vocabulary. We're trying to. We're trying to stimulate ourselves, mm. and um, if it's great when that works in the way that other people like it, also that's very flattering. But it is an extremely selfish thing that we're doing in the band. Like we're, if I can impress Bob and Todd, then that makes me feel way better than if other people are applying. So it's all about the room when you, when you, when you write your <laughs> Yeah, recording. you have to read the room, but the room only has three people in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like the way you, you, you kind of change the live setup as well. You know, when we talk about this, you don't have the monitor there, it's there, it's all thought out, it's very clever. There's lots of, there's a lot of thought goes into it, isn't there? Yeah, again, all these things seem like just practical solutions for us. We're a three-piece band, and we play in the same physical arrangement every night on every stage, no matter where it is. So if we don't use the stage monitors, then it will sound consistent to us from night to night, whether we're outdoors in a festival or in a small club or on a big stage. The relationship that we have to each other, the physical geometry of it stays the same. So we never complain about the monitors because we don't have any monitors. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, a way of simplifying the process of being in a, a band. Define the cliches. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, I, I don't really care. If, we, if it worked better for us to have monitors everywhere and have uh, you know, a very complex stage set up, then we would do that. But we, we are all interested in pursuing a minimalist approach to our music and, our, and to our band. I've been using the same guitar for 25 years, and uh, Bob has been using the same bass guitar for 25 years. And I think a few years ago we bought Todd a, a cowbell for the drum <laughs> um, But And I should mention this to him, but he never added it to the drum kit. <laughs> Maybe tonight's the night to approach the subject. <laughs> I remember we had a whole conversation about it. Maybe we should get a cowbell so that we could play a cowbell now and again. Because there are, I, 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 we may have talked about this in the, in the past, but there, there, we have a rule in the band that when, if you're driving, then you run the radio, right? And if a song starts with cowbell, you are obliged to turn it up. Because the, the cowbell intro is one of the defining characteristics of a great rock song. There are so many great rock songs that have a cowbell in the beginning. Um, we've only been fooled once. Um, it was, uh, there was a horrible band from the set, late 70s called Loverboy. Yeah. They had a song called Everybody's Working for the Weekend. And 
it starts with what we thought was a cowbell, so we had to turn the radio up. Turns out, it wasn't a cowbell, it was the metronome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the paradigm has not been broken. Yeah. <laughs> One, everybody's working for the weekend does not defeat Mississippi Queen. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that the music that Shellac make is, I mean, I, I, this is just kind of my head, but almost it's, it's designed, not, not you said a design purpose, but for the way you record it as well. Because all the things you record, and there's some fantastic recordings, ironically, Page and Plant, where Jimmy Page got you to do what he could, should have done anyway, because that's kind of his drum sound in a sense, wasn't it? The Navarra album, which I think sounds fantastic to this day. But the, be the best thing you record is the Shellac albums. They just sound... I don't think you can make a rock band sound any better than that. And that's, I'm not saying that because you're here. I always say to my mates. That's very nice. But when you stand in, when you've got the three of you in a room recording and uh, uh, writing, are you thinking in terms of the mics and what it's going to sound like in the studio? No, and I think that's another cultural difference between your experience of music and my experience of music. Um, records are signposts along the way. But for us, the practice of the band, like the, the, us playing together in the rehearsal or on stage, that's what we think of when we think of the band. The records, are it's nice to do records, because then you have something that you can refer to about a certain era of the band or a certain frame of mind you were in at one point. But the records are not the end result. The records are not the final product. The final product is the long arc of the band, like all the people that we meet along the way, all the bands that we play with, all the dinners that we have, all the road trips, all the, you know, all the arguments that we have and then resolve, like that, that's, that's what is important to us in the band. The recordings, I take them seriously, it's, you know, it's my profession, I want to do a good job, but the recordings are not the band, the recordings are just an indication of the band. A snapshot of yeah. the moment. And, and I think, it, I know this was true because of conversations that I had with so many English people, that English people do genuinely see records as the end result of music. True, and, I think it's know. true, yeah. And in, it might be because the music scene in England was a smaller population that had a greater level of stardom within the general public than in America. Mm. And in America, you know, being in a rock band is not a lot different from being, you know, in an amateur sports team, something like that, you know. And very few amateur sports teams have celebrities as a result. They're just, you might be known in your neighborhood or you might get a free, free drink at the bar or whatever, but the, the notion of like sort of general stardom and celebrity just didn't really exist in the music scene in America. And it happened occasionally by accident, but it was generally people that were more in the sort of manufactured pop music scene and not that had come out of the, the working band environment that were where we came up. Okay, it's time's right now, but I got a couple questions of the crowd. But first, I just want to talk about your uh, success in poker. It's quite. I keep reading these little stories, going, "Wow, <laughs> the amount of money you're making there is incredible." Well, last year I won a bracelet, which is the that's a, instead of a trophy at the World Series of Poker. If you win an event, they give you a bracelet, hmm. um, and so they're called bracelet events. And I won a bracelet at, at, in seven card stud at the World Series of Poker last year, um, and it it sounds. It sounds like a bigger deal than it than it is because over the course of the summer they have sixty something of these tournaments, 
and winning one of them is, is great. You know, there's a lot of money and you get a, a bracelet and you, you know, it feels like an accomplishment. But, you know, there are a lot of people that do it every year. So I'm, it's not like I'm the one guy that won a bracelet last year. I'm one of several dozen people that won bracelets last year. Mm. But it was quite gratifying. I haven't played poker most of my life. And it's a, it's, I find that, as a game, I find it immensely fascinating. Just, um, I, I described it once as like chess, but if the chess pieces themselves are money. <laughs> so every time you capture a rook, you're like, ha ha, ching that sort of thing. Um, the, there is something about poker that is like solving a puzzle to me. And it seems like a very internal process to me to figure out what I should do in a certain situation. I know other people, I have some friends who are professional poker players who do nothing else with their time. And those people are extremely competitive, not just in poker, but in other aspects of their life. They want to win, they want to beat somebody else. They want to be the one guy that solves a problem and gets the reward. And I've never felt like that. I've never been a competitive person. I have played on, you know, on a baseball team or whatever, but it's never bothered me to lose, and I've never felt like, you know, that that much elation when I win. I just I'm not a competitive person, so I I do honestly wonder why I do it, but then I remember that you get paid, <laughs> and that you know then my questions are all answered right there. I'm doing it for the money. I mean, it, I'm just sort of like... It might be the only yeah. thing in my life that I do primarily for the money. Yeah. So I'm kind of making a little sketchy guess here, but the way, the way you approach music and make music, is it similar to the way you play poker? Is it a, a methodical... You're very thought out. You're very, you know, when you make the music, there's an instinct of quality, of course, but there's also a method to what you do. If there is any connection between poker and the rest of my life, I don't know what it is. I would have to say, like off the top of my head, I would say no, they're nothing alike. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are little, little air, segmented areas of my life that I take quite seriously. You know, being in a band, working, you know, being in shellac and working on shellac's music. That's a very specific area of my life running the business of the recording studio and being a recording engineer working on other people's records. That's a very specific area of my life. Playing cards, it's an, a, another very specific, very, you know, sometimes intense and quite serious area of my life, but it's quite separate from all of these other areas. I'm, uh, I'm, we have a, a very productive garden at my house and I'm, I very much enjoy cooking for my wife. So. My enthusiasm for cooking is another area which is, you know, I take it quite seriously and I, I really enjoy it. I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. But I don't think it has any relationship to these other things. And I don't think the poker has any relationship to these other things. Okay, I think we've run out of time. So, thanks, Steve. I'll leave. You have been listening to the John Robb Tapes with me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Loud and Warm, this podcast was produced and engineered by Andrew Payne. If you enjoy this, please retweet it and tell your mates thanks for listening.
If you like this podcast, you'll probably like other podcasts made by Lush. Maybe, potentially, hopefully. Definitely. You should tune in to the Lush podcast with me, Nilla Davies. And me, Olivia Graham. Available on iTunes. Like, link, subscribe. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.